Thank you very, very much, Juliana. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to the pastoral epistles and to the third one, which is the book of Titus. And uh, as you are turning to the book of Titus, I need to remind Dr. McCarty, and I need to remind Dr. Allen, and I need to remind my wife that of all of the snakes that you can find in this country, the most deadly of them all is a very small snake called a coral snake. And I need to tell you all three to be careful when you get in bed at night that you don't have a very small snake in your bed. And uh, thank you for the introduction, Dr. McCarty. It's always a joy to hear you. Now, uh, the book of Titus is a small book, and there are just six messages uh, in the uh, series that I'm going to deliver. Uh, the uh, uh, president each spring uh, tries to deliver a series of messages on some book, hopefully to inspire you to be a book-by-book, verse-by-verse preacher. I admit that the inspiration may work against me. You may decide after hearing me, you don't want to do that. But my prayer is that you will come to the conclusion that that's what you should do. And here's why. This is the Word of God. Now, if you're smarter than God, then you have no need to do text-driven preaching. If you are not as smart as God, you have every reason to be sure that you do text-driven preaching. So let's look at the first four verses of the book of Titus this morning, and uh, here is what we read. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and with the full knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Now, I'm calling the series The Witness of Christ in a Depraved Culture. The culture to which Titus is addressed, or in which Titus was addressed, was similar to our own. The island of Crete is the position where you will need to take a look for a moment. And you will see the largest of all the Mediterranean islands. Most of you have never been to Crete, but by all means you should go there. And we do not know how the work actually began on the island of Crete. We do not think that the Apostle Paul was a part of the beginning of the work on the island of Crete, but somebody was, and certainly Paul felt very close to those believers on the island of Crete. Now, as you look at the island, it's about 156 miles long, 30 miles wide at its uh, widest point. It has a mountain chain right down the middle, 8,100-foot, uh, 8,190-foot uh, 8, Mount Ida is there, which was the birthplace of Zeus. 
And of course, you can't have the birthplace of Zeus without having something very important in your culture that's going to affect everything that follows. Right up there on the north side and slightly toward uh, the eastern part of the island, you may see the city of Knossos. Knossos is one of the world's greatest archaeological digs, one of three or four that I would put in that top level of all that I've ever visited and seen. It is most interesting to go there. That ancient city of Knossos was the heart of the bull lore of the island of Crete. Well, what is the bull lore? Well, you see, there was a king who was the son of Zeus whose name was Minos. Now, when we come to Minos, we've got a lot of mythology mixed together with a certain amount of truth because there actually was a king there by the name of Minos. And Minos um, uh, wedded, uh, got married to Pasiphae, and Pasiphae was the daughter of the sun. And guess what? We're back to mythology. But nevertheless, that's what we learned, that Zeus uh, uh, was uh, fathered Minos, and Minos wedded Pasiphae, the daughter of the sun. And uh, Poseidon was the favorite god of the island of Crete because Poseidon is the god of the sea. And you saw on the island of Crete, you'll go back there just a second, that it is surrounded on every side by water. And so uh, Poseidon was a favorite god, and, and Minos worshipped Poseidon. And Poseidon gave to Minos a magnificent white bull. And he gave him this bull so that he could sacrifice him to Poseidon. However, Minos became infatuated with the great white bull, and he decided that he would make sacrifice to Poseidon, but it wouldn't be the great white bull. So he substituted an inferior victim. And that made Poseidon very unhappy. It's bad to make the gods unhappy with you. And so, sure enough, in this case, as awful as it may seem to you, Poseidon calls Pasiphae, Minos's wife, to develop a hideous lust for the bull. And she satisfied that lust, disguised as a cow, and gave birth to the Minotaur. Let us see the Minotaur. Oh, my goodness. What an event that is. There's the Minotaur. He was half bull, half man. And he was a terror on the earth. In fact, he demanded human tribute to eat, and so Minos built the labyrinth, and that's where that word comes from, and it was an underground prison where the Minotaur was permanently imprisoned, and uh, Minos went all over uh, the ancient world uh, paddling people who he then took into slavery and then fed to this hideous bull monster that is there, and this caused the the idea of the bull lore to develop on the island of Patmos. Now, I haven't told you a lot about Crete so far, but I've told you just enough to show you uh, this is a pretty sad place. This is a place that is more depraved than most that you would find even in the ancient Roman Empire. And it was very resistant early on to Christianity, but that's okay. It's fine to be called to a resistant place 
All you need to do is to have somebody like Titus on hand. Now, of course, we all know about Timothy. Paul was close to Timothy, and, and, uh, and his longest pastoral letters are written to Timothy. But this Titus turned out to be a very important man. First of all, he was not a Hebrew. He was a Greek, and that made him unique because Paul took him as evidence that God had saved the Gentiles too and displayed him at the conference that they had in Jerusalem. Not only that, but every time there was a serious problem in a church somewhere, Paul did not turn to Timothy, who was a little weak in his constitution, but he turned inevitably to Titus. He sent Titus to Corinth, and the big problems that the church in Corinth had, and sure enough, Titus worked them out. And now he was going to have to go to Crete to a situation in a depraved culture that was pressing down on the church and Titus, you're to be my messenger to the Isle of Crete. Well, all right, let's see what we can find out about this. Let's look, first of all, at the authority of the messenger. You see that in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He makes two identifications of himself as the messenger. First of all, he is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because of the failures of our own country in the matter of the slave trade, and indeed the guilt of the whole world involved in the slave trade, it has become very unpopular to speak of slavery in a positive way. Yet I intend today to make the point very strongly that if God has called you to the ministry, you have become a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were not forced into that slavery, of course. It is a voluntary act on your part whereby you have agreed to become the bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he says go, you go, and you ask about other things on the way. If he says stay, you stay, no matter how much you would want to go. To be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had uh, men write me every year, and they want to go to a church. Would you recommend me to a church? Now, I will need $75,000 a year in salary. And uh, I want to go to this church because it is a well-known church in this particular area, and I would like to have this and have that and have the other, and I will not recommend a single one of them. If you want to go to that church for any other reason than that the call of God is upon you to go to that church, you don't need my recommendation. Let me tell you what, to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a bond slave. But that's on one end of the equation. He's a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is also an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not uncommon to run across apostles today. Every one of them is a false apostle. To be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, you had to have seen the Lord alive after his resurrection. That is specified in Holy Scripture. 
And so the only apostles that there were were people who had seen the Lord alive after his resurrection. And Paul said, I am one born out of due season because he saw the risen Lord on the way to Damascus. And so an apostle is someone who is sent from the master. That's really what the word means. Apo, stello. Stello is to send. Apo, from. Sent from the master with a special message. You say, well, we don't have the apostles today. Yes, actually we do. Right there. You have the prophets and the apostles. Everything that is given to us that we need for the functioning of our faith and the living of our lives is revealed in the Word of God, the apostolic message. There are no more apostles except, as you find it, written in God's Word. So the authority of the messenger, he is a slave and he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, I want you to see the authenticity of his message. Paul, what are you going to write about? I want you to see four things in the text. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, with reference to the little preposition kata, here meaning with reference to, with reference to the faith of God's elect. With reference to the faith of God's elect. That's what he's going to write about. That's what he's going to talk about. With reference to the faith of God's elect. Well, Mr. President, we didn't think you believed in the doctrine of election. Nothing could be further from the truth. Whoever said that is guilty of falsehood. Number one, the doctrine of election is in the Bible. It is not only in the Bible here, it occurs repeatedly in God's Word. And he who does not preach the whole counsel of God is guilty before God. The doctrine of election is in the Bible. And here he references it, saying, according to the faith of God's elect, another way of speaking of the church of the living God, that all those who truly know the Lord as Savior are the elect of God. Well, you know, what is the problem? Why do we have so much difficulty with the doctrine of election in our social order today? Why is it that the church is divided over this? Well, it's for a good reason, actually, because I've just pointed out that the doctrine of election is prominent in the Word of God. The problem is, if you have God acting arbitrarily in eternity past to say, this man is going to be saved, talking to me naturally, and looking at Barry McCarty and saying, I've made that man to be lost, well, how do you make that uh, uh, make sense of that when you have all the passages in the Bible about whosoever will, let him come. On the one hand, elect according to the knowledge of God. On the other hand, whosoever will, let him come. Now, some people want to emphasize the whosoever. Other people want to emphasize the elect. And what they have a tendency to do is to explain away the other side. So what you have to understand, if you believe heavily in the doctrine of election, maybe you'll make this mistake. You don't have to, but maybe you will. Maybe you'll say, well, but you have to understand what whosoever means. Whosoever will means whosoever of the elect may come. 
That's not what the Bible says, but you can read that into it if you want to. And when you read it into it, you distort the Word of God because the Bible still says whosoever will may come. And it says it not once, not twice, not three times, but hundreds of times it makes it clear that we have a human responsibility to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. But how is that possible? If there is such a thing as election, how then could we be responsible? So those who are all in favor of whosoever will have a tendency never to preach on election. I'm going to preach on everything in the Bible. You're not going to catch me preaching on election because that's a, that's a difficult doctrine and I may not understand it completely and I don't know for sure what it means. So I'm just going to talk about who's... Listen, you have to preach the whole counsel of God. And it says, whosoever will may come. And it also says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So how in the world are we to understand this? Well, I want you to look with me for just a moment at a very interesting passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, just one verse. And he's going to put it on the screen there for you so you can see this. I want you to look at this verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. We'll get it. There it is right there. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion... A chief cornerstone. Who is that? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. Oh, oh. He is elect and he is precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now, I am going to suggest to you this morning a resolution of the difficulty between whosoever will and elect according to the foreknowledge of God. I want to stress to you, however, that it is a mystery known and understood only in the heart of God. And any preacher who stands today and tells you that he comprehends all of it has simply told you that he is ignorant. The fact of the matter is that how these two things go together is something that is known in the heart of God, and hopefully someday when we get to heaven, we'll understand it completely. But whether we do or not, it is right, and it is appropriate, and it is godly, and it is in the heart of God. We have to do the best we can to make sense of it, and I'm going to tell you how I make sense of it for what it's worth. Here is what the verse says. Please leave it up there for just a moment, if you will. There we go. He is called the one who is the elect one. Therefore, I have, have uh, um, in Scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. Jesus is the elect one of God. He is the chosen one of God. He is the only one that ultimately matters of all who ever became a human being on this earth. He is the elect one, the chosen one of God. Now, whosoever wills to come to him is then in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, as the Bible says... That means that you are a part of God's elect at that particular point in time. 
Oh, guess what? Now, that makes sense. That will explain how it is possible to be the elect of God and at the same time a responsible individual that has to make a choice about whether or not he will serve God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God means that I've come to Jesus and I've received him and I'm now in the elect. But why on earth is that doctrine so important? And it is vitally important. The doctrine of election is the glue that holds the soteriology of the New Testament together. When I was in Zagreb not too long ago, and I think I mentioned this once before, but uh, Pastor Mihal is here today from the church at Zagreb, so I thought it would be appropriate to mention it one more time. While I was there, he kept me busy all the time. But one day, he left a morning open. And I, of course, am curious, and so I was looking around Zagreb to see what I could go see. And I found something that interested me very much. I found a museum of broken relationships. Can you imagine a museum of broken relationships? Here is a catalog. I bought one. Way too expensive. Uh, I paid the taxes for uh, Pastor Michal for the next 20 years when I bought this book. But anyway, uh, here it is. Uh, a diary of the Museum of Broken Relationships. And, and uh, I went to the museum. It was an experience I will never forget. People have succeeded uh, to this museum all the experiences they've had in life that broke their hearts. And, and Sally and Joe broke up, and, and the love note is there in the museum, and, and on and on it goes. And, and uh, it was the funniest thing I've ever been to in my life because there were hundreds of people in the museum, and they were reading this stuff, and they were weeping as they read it. And I thought it was just hysterically funny to watch those people stand there and weep over somebody's experiences that they knew nothing about whatsoever at all. The Museum of Broken Relationships. Let me tell you what the doctrine of election does. The doctrine of election is God's promise to you that the relationship you have with Christ will never be broken. It is the cement that holds the whole of that together. It is a guarantee. Look, if you are God's elect, it is not possible for you to forfeit that salvation. Those people who believe you can be saved today, lost tomorrow, saved again the following day, don't understand the doctrine of election. Election guarantees you that from the moment you are in Christ Jesus, you are there forever. The passage that Dr. Day read a moment ago from Romans 8 concludes that way. And not only is the doctrine of election the glue that holds the whole of soteriology together and guarantees that you will be saved in the day of the Lord's return, the doctrine of election does something else. It guarantees you that no matter what President Trump does in the White House, no matter what anybody else ever does in the White House, no matter what Putin does in Russia, no matter what ISIL does in the Middle East, no matter what happens in the world, Christ is on his throne, 
and will prevail. The world is not out of control, bouncing off the walls of history as it propels itself to ultimate destruction, but God's hand is on every moment of it, and we will prevail with him. So the doctrine of election promises you. You read Romans 8, and you'll see four different things that the doctrine of election guarantees to you. I'm thankful for the doctrine of election in the Bible. I do not simply believe that it means what some people think it does. I do not think it means that God arbitrarily in eternity past chose to make some to save them and the vast majority to damn them. I find that totally inconsistent with the God of the Bible and with the message of God's Word. But I find it totally consistent with the message of God's Word that Christ is the chosen one of God, and if I'm in Him, I am saved forever, and I can trust Him completely in that way. Well, I'd like to spend a little more time on it, but i got to get the rest of this, so uh, look carefully with me. First of all, he's writing according to the faith of God's elect, and then he's writing with a full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now, that word acknowledgement in the King James Version there, that's epignosin. Epignosin is from gnosis, to know, and epi, to know upon to know upon, to know upon, to know upon, that is to have a full knowledge. He says he has a full knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. He is writing, first of all, with reference to these elect and the faith of God's elect, but secondly, with a full knowledge. And we need to keep that in mind as we read the book. Now look at the third one in verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. In hope of eternal life. Now hope, the Greek word elpis, is a little different in the Bible. If I get up in the morning and I say, man, I hope it won't snow today, half the students will stay home. That means I don't have the foggiest notion whether it's going to snow or not. I'm just hoping something will be true. Well, I hope my wife doesn't give me another salad for supper tonight. I am <laughs> sick of salad cucumbers and carrots and all that kind of thing. I, I hope she won't do that. Well, I don't have much hope. I pretty well know what I'm going to get, but I, I can hope it. It's okay. But now in the New Testament, hope is not wondering what's going to happen and hoping for the best. Hope is simply an unrealized as yet promise of God an unrealized as yet promise of God. In other words, when you hope in the New Testament, you hope in something that is absolutely for certain. It just hasn't occurred yet. So Paul wants them to know that whatever's going on in the culture of Crete, whatever's going on with Titus, whatever's happening in the church, it's okay because I'm in hope of eternal life which God uh, has, uh, who cannot lie, has promised. And then there's this little expression, before time began. And the word there for time is the word chronos. We're going to have another word for time in verse 4, but that's going to be the word kairos. Here's the perfect contrast between these two concepts of time. 
Now, I want you to notice, first of all, he is writing, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before chronos, gives us our word chronology, chronos is time as man reckons time. For example, you might make a temporal judgment. You might say, well, I'm 25. Look at that old codger up there in the pulpit. How many thousand years you reckon, reckon he is old? What you've done is you've made a, chronos, uh, a judgment of chronos. You have made a judgment of the passing of time as man recognizes it. Before there was ever any such thing as chronos time, time as man calculated, calculates it, Look what God had done in hope of eternal life, who God, which God who cannot lie promised before he ever even created the cosmos and created time as man counts it. I'm so grateful that God is a God who is able to do that. There's one fourth thing, and I want you to see it very carefully. But in due times, the translation reads, he manifested his word through preaching. Now, that's the word kairos. Kairos is a word which means a very special choice of time. God's time of intervention. It was a kairos moment when you met Christ and found him as your savior. The reason you can still remember it, and if you still can't remember it, maybe it didn't happen. I remember as a nine-year-old boy receiving Christ as my Savior more vividly than I remember anything that happened to me yesterday. It is forever etched in my mind and heart that night when I did business with God and the Lord saved me. It was a special Kairos moment. It was a Kairos moment when God called me into his ministry and I've been party to so many other chirotic moments when God would do something special in his choice of time that would surprise everybody and nobody could believe what God had done in that moment, a Kairos moment. Now look what he says here about it. He says in this Kairos moment, God manifested the chirotic moment of all chirotic moments was when Christ came and was manifest to the world and he manifested his word. Now I want you to look at this. Through charigmata, charigmati here, through preaching. God chose to manifest himself in a thousand chirotic moments, choice moments of God through preaching. Did you ever stop to think how odd that is? Had I been God, I don't think I would have done it that way. I have no idea how I would have done it, but to use a preacher, a man up in front of a group of people openly proclaiming God's word, that is a strange come to pass. But it is exactly what he says here. Now you know why we have a school of preaching. 
Now you know why we emphasize preaching here as we do, because we believe it is God's chosen method for the communication of the gospel. Now he has many methods of communication. You may be preaching to only one person, which we usually call a witness, but you may be preaching to a congregation. It doesn't matter. It's still a chirotic moment when God uses the witness of the one who is sharing the faith to meet the needs, spiritually speaking, of the person to whom he speaks. God has chosen the ministry of preaching as a chirotic moment. Well, we have only one thing left to do, and that is verse 4. To Titus, a true son in the common faith, that's koinonia, faith, a faith that we have in fellowship with one another. And then he says, grace and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He does not say peace and grace. It is grace and peace. Folks, the only real peace there is in this whole universe is what you have in Christ Jesus. And that's why we have biblical counseling here at the school. Because peace with God only comes through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. February 25th, 1836, something very important happened in Paterson, New Jersey. Samuel Colt created the revolver, and it was patented on February 25th, 1836, the first 1,000 revolvers, and I started to bring mine today just to show you, but I decided I didn't want to scare you to death, so I didn't. But the first 1,000 of those Colt revolvers, guess where they went? To the state of Texas. Amen. Tried. You might have figured it, wouldn't you? So the Texas Rangers ordered the first 1,000. Now, until then, all the bullets that were ever shot in the history of the world were single shots. And after you shot it, you were finished. While you were reloading, somebody shot you. And so it was a very difficult thing to do that. Man, we need something that shoots more than one shot. Samuel Cope figured it out. Now, that first uh, revolver, the one that the Texas Rangers uh, ordered, was number five, a 36 caliber. And uh, it was pretty complicated, even though it did hold five shots. And, and uh, you could shoot five times before you had a rather complicated task of reloading. But nevertheless, it was so prominent in Texas, where those first 1,000 came, that it became commonly called the Texas Paterson. That's the language you called. And gradually, it changed, and guess what it became known as? It became known as the peacemaker. Sorry, you can never make peace with a revolver. You can never make peace with any weapon. The only peace that you ever have is through the grace of God. And in that moment of agonizing self-examination and repentance, 
when a man cries out to God. The Bible says, the peace that passes all understanding shall keep your mind and heart in Jesus Christ. God grant us his peace. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the word of God. We thank you for the promises of God given to us. We thank you today especially for the doctrine of election that assures us that once we are saved, we shall never be lost. In Jesus' name.